When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Progressive presents Adjusting to the Suburbs. I never thought I'd care about gardening until I bought a house in the suburbs. But now I find myself in conversations about liquid fertilizer and I wonder, am I the fertilizer guy now? <laughs> no, no way. Everyone knows the ratio between phosphorus and nitrogen, right? Yeah, I'm still totally cool. Anyway, when you save with Progressive by bundling your home and auto, that's the easy part of adjusting to the suburbs. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company coverage provided in service by affiliates and third-party insurers. Hey, it's Mistress Carrie reporting for duty from MCHQ for episode 32 of the Mistress Carrie podcast. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Digital Federal Credit Union. But I can just say DCU and you know exactly who I'm talking about. Whether you bank at one of their branches or you use their mobile app to do your banking, DCU is committed to putting the needs of their members first. This month, one of their oldest branches in New England is relocating. For over 20 years, the team at DCU's Hudson, New Hampshire branch has been doing the right thing by their members, and they'll continue to do that. They're just going to be at their new location at the Flagstone Crossing Plaza, which is also in Hudson, New Hampshire. What could DCU mean to you? Find out for yourself at dcu.org. This episode of the podcast is also sponsored by mistresscarry.com. The website is out there and it's growing every day. You can find every episode of the Mistress Carry podcast, every after action report, every sit rep, plus every episode of Cocktails in the War Room. It's a lot. Plus you'll find my blog, photo galleries, the events calendar, which is full of awesome live streamed concerts that the bands are doing right now. And you'll find the official online Mistress Carrie store where you can get Mistress Carrie t-shirts and sweatshirts and cocktails in the war room gear, beanies, pint glasses, shot glasses. There's even stuff to outfit your new badass home office. At least I hope your new home office is badass. So just go to mistresscarry.com for everything. Okay, episode 32 of the podcast is um, something I've wanted to do for a while. Frank Scambalone, I have known for years. We actually tried to figure out exactly when we met. I think I figured it out, but I could be wrong. He works for a company called Claire Global, which does a lot of things, but what Frank does for them is he's a front-of-house sound engineer for live concerts. You know, that guy behind that giant board with all the knobs on the floor at the concerts? That guy. Frank's been doing it almost 30 years. And he's local. He's from Rhode Island originally. 
He's worked with everyone from Linda Ronstadt and the Beastie Boys to Soundgarden, Alice in Chains, Stained, Godsmack, and right now he works with Luke Bryan. Well, when the world's not shut down because of COVID. I thought it'd be really interesting to hear from somebody that's on that side of the music we love. What's it like to tour? Exactly what he does all day. The science behind the gear and the technology. How did he get into it? Plus, he's got some great stories about practical jokes that get played on the road and some behind-the-scenes anecdotes on the artists that we love. The bands we love and the music that is the soundtrack to our lives has a lot of people involved that you don't get to see every day. And Frank is one of them. And he knows what he's talking about. So allow me to introduce you to Frank Scambalone. Hey, what's up? This is Sully from Godsmack. Strap on those boots, baby, because you are now in the trenches of the war room with the one and only Mistress Carrie right here on the Mistress Carrie podcast. What's up? This is Joe Rogan, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. I have so lovely, pretty eyes. Hey, this is Brent from Shinedown, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hey, Carrie, go put your brow on, girl. Hey, this is Steven Tyler, and you'll be listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. What's up? This is Aaron from Stan. And you're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hi, everybody. This is Dave Grohl from the Foo Fighters, and you're listening to the one, the only, Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is David from the band Disturbed, and you're listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. This is Marilyn Manson, and you're listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. Hi, this is Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. This is Dennis Leary. You are listening to my favorite, Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is Corey from Stone Sour, and you're listening to. You have the privilege of listening to. Mr. Scary. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. Hey, the recording light's on. We're on the record, Frank. How are you? Good evening. I'm so good. Thank you for doing this. Hey, thanks for having me. I know that you haven't spent the greater part of your adult life being the one on this side of the microphone, but I appreciate that you still wanted to sit down with me. Well, it's always uh, a fun time. I think the last time... We saw each other before tonight. It was at the Shinedown show in Boston. Yeah, at the, right? at the pavilion. That's right. Yeah, Bad Flower played, di- um, Dinosaur Pileup played. Roaring. How good Back was in that? the great old days when we could go to concerts and hang out with our friends in person. And good guys, you know. I love the Shinedown guys. It's, they've been a part of my... Uh, a, a big part of my career as well, right? They At the beginning with Godsmack, their early time with them. They were yep. one of the support bands on the tour with Zombie. So it goes back a long way, and it was a lot of fun that night to see a lot of people that I hadn't quite, frankly, hadn't seen for a while. Well, it was really funny to to be, you know, you and I are going to have a lot of conversation because obviously you're an audio engineer, and so we're going to talk about this. But you went to the show for fun that night, which is not something you do very often. And we were standing out at what they call the front of house, and I want to make sure people understand what that is. So when you go to a concert... <laughs> The board, the sound board, where they do the lights and the sound and all of that stuff that they always have in the middle of the floor, that's normally where you work all the time. Yeah. And sometimes you guys let friends and family kind of hang out in there because it's, it's a really good place to watch a show. And so you and I were kind of the friends and family that got to sit in the cool seats, and you weren't the one standing behind the board twisting the knobs and pushing the faders. You were just there watching the show. It was cool because I don't think I had ever just watched a show with you before. 
Yeah, it's it's not that often that I, I don't go to them that often. It's not that I don't like it. I don't want to. It's just I, I'm at home and I got the family and uh, I don't there's not much that's going to interest me that comes to town if I don't know who it is. And most well, it's of the like time, being a hooker and having to have sex on your night <laughs> off. It's like it's still fun. But really, yeah. can you just give me a night off? No, it was it was uh, the great Andy Meyer mixing the show. He was uh, Shine Down's front of house mixer. It was it was a surprise. I had no idea he was there. And uh, it was it turned out to be a really great night of seeing a bunch of friends listen to a great band and uh, listen to other people complaining. Just the crazy <laughs> a drunk, dude. I can't hear the snare. Yeah. No, no. What do you think? What do I think? I think I don't get drunk in the middle of an arena and uh, do critical listening. You dope. Get out of here. Go, go have another Mike's hard cider or whatever it is you're doing. That was one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about because you have this amazing career and everybody that goes to concerts sees the guy that does your job because you're right there in the middle of the crowd and you're you're the guy that makes their favorite band sound amazing. But I also think that people walk by you a lot and don't really understand what it is that you're doing in there. So I want to go back to the beginning. Because your love of music comes from a background where you were actually in bands as a musician, right? Yeah, yeah. I started off, um, we'll say early 80s. It'd have to be like in my high school years, maybe as a, a junior, senior. So it would have been about 84, 85. I, I was fairly proficient guitar player. And I played with some rock bands, uh, one out of Rhode Island called Quake. We played, you know, the living room. JR's fast lane, and that kind of went away because we just we got older and everybody wanted to do their own thing and different things and just idiots. Well, you realize you gotta have a job too. Like, yeah, I got bills to pay. Yeah, that was the worst part of it is working all day long and you're never making any money doing it. And then figured if I'm not gonna make any money doing it and still be doing something with music, um, have fun with it. So there was another band I played in called the Flaming Donuts of Jesus. Funny enough. Yeah, I know. Wait a minute. Hold on. <laughs> that might be one of the greatest band names I've ever heard. How have I not heard of these guys? I have no idea. It was probably, uh, uh, I don't know. I honestly that's think that's the greatest that I, that... hashtag that's ever come to be, I think, yeah. on the Mistress Carrie podcast. The Flaming Donuts of Jesus. Yeah. So that was, that was, uh, the best group of musicians I played with. It was kind of like Journey meets Toto meets an aggravated white guy singing. It was just everybody was really good. We had a lot of fun, but it wasn't typical. We had a piano player, uh, brother, two brothers, the Faella brothers, John and Jimmy playing bass and drums together who had been playing their whole lives. It was really solid. And uh, we started rehearsing in another building at Soundstage Audio in Providence, uh, owned by Dennis Verducci, right? Who should be in the Rhode Island Music Hall of Fame by now if he's not. And it literally turned into um, a guy not showing up to work on the weekend because it was the 80s. It was uh, doing the butt. That was really what was popular, all the R&B and disco stuff. And uh, a guy didn't show up for work one Friday night and he called me at my house. And I didn't even have a driver's license at that point. You know, I was still 15 years old, 16 maybe. And uh, he said, I need you to go do sound 
for this band in a club. And I was like, I don't know how to do sound. Oh, it's already set up. They've been playing there since Wednesday. You just got to go in, turn it on, sit behind a console. And I was like, I, I don't have a car. So he's like, can your mother drive you? And I said, yeah, I think so. Hang on. My mother, God bless her. I mean, literally, this was the thing. Because if she had said no, I, I would be somewhere else completely at this point. And I'm trying to imagine, like, you come from a good Italian family in Rhode Island. Like, I'm trying to imagine your mom <laughs> being like, Frankie. Yeah. I don't yeah. want to go out. Why yeah, are you so making me drive you? <laughs> yeah. So um, he convinced her. She got on the phone with him. He told her what was going on. My mother puts her coat on. We drive to uh, where, uh, Jesus, TF Green Airport. I think they call it the Providence Airport now. There was a little strip mall with a disco bar, like down in the basement. So I get there and they're like, who are you? I said, I'm supposed to help do sound for this band tonight. Like you, you're a kid. <laughs> and then the owner came up and they're like, what What did he send you for? You know. So finally they talked to each other, convinced me to go in. They sat me down like, you know, in, in like a, a Denny's booth with the soundboard on it, really, <laughs> and put a bouncer next to me to make sure I didn't get up or go drink. And I'm 15, 16. I'm in a bar full of gorgeous women. Everybody's drinking. Everybody's having a good time. The band is awesome. And I look like well, a they're hero. the flaming donuts of Jesus. No, no, right? this was <laughs> this was a different band. This oh, is that was the band it. you were in. Oh, yeah. oh, 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 oh. Do you remember the name of the band that you mixed that night? I don't. I honestly don't. I was more concerned with uh, looking at girls. I, you know, <laughs> I, I I can't lie. But I mean, I'm I'm that old. At that age, you know, you got priorities. And yeah. um, there was no way this was going any other way after that. I was like, oh, my God, this is what goes on in these places. Can I do this all the time? Wait, are you going to pay me? Yeah. Yeah. That was the other part, right? I'm going to get paid to go play around with gear and and do this. And I was like, this is great. And it, I quickly like had to learn. I would go in, you know, after school. My mom would drive me over to this place because I lived in Citroen, Rhode Island. He was in Providence. So I'd have to have her drive me over there until I finally got a driver's license. And then little by little, I learned how to set up PA systems, uh, learned how to fix the stuff I broke. And it just kind of snowballed from there. And I got better and better. And I started to mix local bands. And the more I did sound, the less I actually played. So it, I kind of transitioned out of being a musician into being a PA tech and repair guy at that point. It's funny that that your that your career can like make that weird change like that because growing up I always thought that I wanted to be a sound engineer in a recording studio. Because in my head I had this image in the mid to late 80s, right, of being the one that knew what all the knobs did. I'm a kid, I'm an idiot. And I wanted to be the one in the recording studio when like Motley Crue was recording a record and like be in the middle of that party and the whole thing. And then I realized, A, I don't have any musical ability. <laughs> B, I don't know what any of the knobs do. And C, when it came time for me to go to college, I couldn't even find a place to go to school to kind of learn how to do it. And so I ended up thinking, all right, well, if I'm going to, you know, if I'm going to get into audio stuff or whatever, I'll go to school for like radio and audio, you know, communications kind of stuff. And then I started working at the college radio station and started interning 
Well, first I, in, I interned at a recording studio in Worcester called Licks Recording Studio. Wow. And it was around the corner from AAF. And one of the girls that I'm still friends with today that I went to high, that I went to college with, she was interning at AAF. I was interning at Licks and we used to meet for lunch. And just to tell people that are listening that don't remember the world without the internet, Licks used to produce commercials that would air on AAF for their advertisers. And I used to have to run the tapes around the corner. And one day I was over there <laughs> oh after, and in the middle of us recording a 27 piece mariachi band, which was not Motley Crue. And they were like, oh, you work over at Licks. How do you like it? And I was like, not very much. And it was Mitch Todd, who was the imaging guy at AAF, who now works at Sirius XM. And he was like, well, you can intern for me for the rest of the summer. I was like, oh, okay. And that's how I got my foot in the door at AAF as an intern was because I hated basically doing what you do now. Yeah. It's uh, amazing how things happen, right? It just, you go into it thinking you're going to do one thing. Like you were going to be Eddie Van Halen. I was praying. <laughs> You know, <laughs> and then that did not happen. No, I was more of a Randy Rhodes fan, actually. Oh, okay. Yeah, I get, the, I get the the idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You no, just I, wanted to be this guitar player, man. Yeah, that was all I could think of. And then I was, well, um, there's a lot of guys here. It's a lot better than me. Remember, too, the '80s was the. I mean, everybody, everybody in Boston, this whole area of the country had unbelievable musicians. You know, oh, everybody yeah. coming out of Berkeley. We had In the Pink. We had Extreme. We had the Rick Berlin band with the Cars. Uh, Jay Giles. Everybody, right? Some of them still. Aerosmith. Jesus, Obviously. I'm not going to forget that, yeah. right? Like, yeah. There was all these musicians who were much better. It was like being, uh, you know, you could be an amateur boxer and be okay. You get in the ring with uh, Triple G or somebody, you're going to get knocked out badly and get hurt. This was <laughs> right. not... This was not uh, playtime. A lot of people were coming to one of the best schools for music that exists on the earth. And they were right. producing a lot of great musicians. And then you realize, you know, the Clint Eastwood line, right? Man's got to know his limitations. Well, <laughs> not, not really good enough to, to hang with these guys. But for some reason, I still took to the technical side of it and brought like music to it. Did you, you know, always know how, that? were you always technical growing up? Like, were you always that person that could take something apart and put it back together or that could, was playing around with the speakers of your hi-fi system or something? Not yet. I could take things that sounded bad and make them sound better. That was really the, the skill I had. And it to this day, I think it serves me because I don't really have a whoopee. You hear a lot of guys crying about, I want this PA, I gotta have that thing, I gotta have this black box, whatever. Uh, I, I don't really kind of work like that. Cause You're a MacGyver guy. Give me a stick of gum and a tampon and I can make the band sound good. Well, not not <laughs> quite, but um, <laughs> my, uh, my sensibilities are toward the song. As a musician, I'm, I'm more worried about does the song sound like a song or does it sound like I put Metallica's kit drum with Eddie Van Halen's guitar and, you know, Rush's overheads. There's things that, that don't make sense to me. And I, I don't know if there's a better way to explain it. It just Yeah, uh, no, there's, I mean, anytime I interview somebody that is as proficient in their profession as you, I always want to make sure that I'm acknowledging that there's a lot of people, including myself, that have no idea what the hell you're talking about most of the time. And like a few weeks ago, I interviewed Nuno and he was talking about 
guitar tone and sound and, and talking about, he literally played Eddie Van Halen's rig in front of Eddie Van Halen. His guitar, his pedals, his cables, his PA, his everything. And he was disappointed that he still sounded like Nuno Betancourt because there's a certain amount that the gear and everything can bring you and then you have to be that person to go the rest of the way. Jerk. And so it's, yeah. Jerk. That's like, that's like Cindy Crawford being upset she's not Marilyn Monroe. Jerk. <laughs> right? That guy watching him as a, ch- you know, a kid. Destroying. Oh, yeah. yeah, it's ridiculous. Yeah, destroying everybody. Again, one of the, the best musicians. That kind of, What does he do now? He plays with everybody and their mother. Yeah. Right? yeah he's got a studio in, in LA in his house and he does. But he just, but he idolized Eddie so much that he was like, this is the one chance where I'm actually going to live out this childhood dream of being able to sound like Eddie Van Halen. And he even said to Ed, like he was disappointed that he could only sound like himself. So it's like what you're talking about is is making sure that no matter what gear, no matter what's going on, that you're making the music in all of its pieces sound as cohesive as it can as a as a final product. Yeah, I'm not a band member, right? I don't I don't look at myself as like putting a stamp on the song that the band is playing like again. And I, I don't say this like to sound big headed, but my clients and the clients of the company I work for are not small. They are on records. They, some of them are, you know, they're going to go to the grave leaving stuff that's going to live way past me and themselves. Right. So you, there's a respect you have to take to the music that you're mixing. Uh, I'm not trying to change what the band sounds like to do, to fit what I do. They already recorded it and worked with a producer and made the final product. It's just your job to replicate it as close as you can. Yeah. Live. Yeah. And that's, that's served me well for a long time. Sometimes bands don't want that. Um, Sometimes they want it bigger. They want it. uh, They just, they want, because they're not going to play it the same way, but it depends on who it is that's in front of you. And if you only know how to do one thing, it doesn't always work. Uh, So you, I guess being flexible, you know, with uh, yeah. the skill, with the equipment, you, you still have to listen to, uh, I don't know. It, it's hard. It's really hard to describe. I don't ever want to get in the way of what the guys on stage are trying to put into the audience because I'm doing weird things or I'm going to try stuff. It's not and you, a place. And that you know better yeah, than they yeah. do. Yeah. That's, they can fi- have that fight with the producer in the studio who wants them to do the, you know, the, the third lick of the bridge eight times. Like I don't, it's, it's not for me to do. I have to, uh, I have to be consistent. Right. Um, my, my bigger problem in my own head from doing this is that, uh, sometimes I, I forget that there are limitations to what I can do, but, um, it's, as a, a music fan, like I remember being that kid who was in the upper bowl and it sounds like dog shit. Right. And my concern is making sure that that guy always hears as good a show as I have in the middle of the floor. That's my bigger concern is that everybody goes away as, as happy as possible with what we've done. And, you know, after 30 years just about of doing this from bars to stadiums, uh, the gear's gotten better the testing equipment the the way we go approach these things has gotten way better and if 
it hadn't, I would still be trying really hard to make it <laughs> as good as possible. It's well, just- talk to me about, you. I mean, you talk about the venue. So, so not only do you have this challenge of trying to replicate something that the band and the producer toiled over for months in the recording studio and you got to replicate it live, but you got to replicate it live in a different place every day. Sometimes it's indoors, sometimes it's outdoors. So, you know, you're, you're configuring the equipment differently every day. And there is a difference between being a sound guy in the old Boston Garden and being a sound guy in the TD Garden now. Because the buildings, when you talk about the equipment getting better, the buildings weren't designed for concerts back in the day. They were designed for the sporting events. And we can make yeah, the but- argument that the old garden wasn't even designed for that with the poles. No, it's uh, they don't build these places for us. It's really the, the long and short. They don't build them for us. But we try uh, to aim everything. If you could just think of it as a light bulb or a flashlight, if you would. You're just trying to light up the seats with people in them. You're not trying to light up anything with the ceiling and dumb things. You know, just things that we didn't know about back then. Yeah. There was no way to predict it. I mean, nowadays you can, you know, we have uh, software and uh, system angles and things that are all come into play with uh, how you curve the systems, how, where you point it, basically, where you just eliminate as much of the problems as you can. You can... Uh, Julie Matway, <laughs> a wonderful uh, promoter rep, uh, said to me a couple of years ago, and I was actually kind of hurt when she said it at the time. And then I realized, like, oh, she figured it out. She said, you guys are just a bunch of nerds who play with things that are invisible. And I was like, well, Can't no. argue with that. <laughs> no, I tried. <laughs> I tried. And then I realized, like, yeah, like a lot of people think they know about sound because – I don't know. They, they, I don't know. It's really a hard thing. Nobody goes to bother the lighting guy to tell him it's too bright. Nobody bothers the pyro guy because it's too loud. Um, but they all have some kind of thing to say about how a show sounds. And the least, you know, if you're never in a review in a newspaper or an article, that's a, that's a great thing. You should be unobtrusive. Like I was right. out, of the, out of the picture. You don't want to be the, it sounded terrible last night and the band persevered. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like something you've read somewhere. <laughs> no, we don't want to be that guy. So when you made the decision that this was going to be your job, this, this wasn't like an overnight thing. It just kind of happened that way. But you you got to go professionally from being the kid in the booth with the bouncer and the chicks to being the guy that actually has to know what the hell he's doing. Is that all learned on the job or did you go to school to figure this out and what did you study? It was a combination of both. Um, up until I was about 24, it was uh, a night job. You know, I went to work in a construction company because I didn't, you know, at that point, going to school for music was not really an option. Um, so I took a day job, like everybody. And then I would work for the same company uh, on the weekends. And uh, I learned there, practical, you know, you know, don't put a gigantic system in a bar. You don't need to do that. And I was an idiot as, you know, oh, sure. The owner would say, yeah, hey, you want to drag it down into some upstairs bar? Fine. Go <laughs> How out. heavy this shit is. Yeah. So you learn the practical experience there. What do you really need to do it with? And then 
uh, it got to a point where I, I needed to, to shit or get off the pot. And I took a job as a stagehand and I worked at Great Woods. Uh, this was right around 92. And uh, my first season there, I saw the Moody Blues and I think John Cougar might have still been John Cougar at that point. Um, Chicago. And then we went over to do um, Earth Day in Foxborough Stadium. And it was the biggest sound system I had ever seen in my life. I mean, it was Claire Brothers S4 system, you know, very, very big boxes, very, very big stadium system. And uh, I was enamored with it. Like, I had never seen anything that big before. I had never seen anything go up and down like it did then. It was completely foreign to me. It would have been like taking a kid out of the jungle and showing him the front of the space shuttle. It just, there was nothing by comparison. And so I started asking questions. You know, how did you learn to do this? And at that point, most of the answers were, well, we would just... You know, we worked here, there, or whatever, and started doing this for our friends' bands and wound up. And uh, there, there's no I roadie that, college. Well, there isn't. There isn't. It's not really a roadie college. It's uh, I went to Full Sail Center for the Recording Arts in Orlando. Um, first, I mean, going back just a little bit, my idea at that point was I, I figured I could do what these guys do, but these guys all know how to fix the equipment that's out there. Right. They all know what to do with it. So I thought, I'm going to go to New England Tech. So I did. And I studied uh, electronics for two years there. And while I was studying there, I was getting as much as I could out of working. I was mixing bar bands. Um, I was making the rounds through like Boston, New Hampshire, Connecticut, some bands in New York. I, I was doing a lot of work for all the local bands. And then realized like, hey, there's a school that teaches this. You can get a degree. And while I was at school, I was doing uh, Genesis, We Can't Dance as a stagehand. And I was in Gillette Stadium. And I remember this Australian guy, just one, 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 all like for an hour, just <laughs> counting one, one, ah, one. Uh, it turned out to be Howard Page, uh, chief of engineering at Shoko who is probably one of the greatest engineers that's ever been in live sound. And then they started doing line check and I got to hear Chester Thompson's drum set like through this massive system that didn't, again, didn't look like anything else. And that was a company called Shoko. And that was when I said, I want to work for these guys. I literally, that, that, that was the day I said, I want to work for this company. I don't know who this is. And they had this massive, massive, just, it looked like two giant speakers. It didn't look typical. So I, again, started asking questions and some of the guys there were kind enough to let me know, like, listen, we, we hire people out of this school in Florida. That's the only place we take interns from. And if you can hang for six weeks with the shop staff while they beat you up, then you wind up working for us and we put you on the road. So I finished electronic school. Well, a week later, I got in the car, I drove to Florida and did another year down there came home for a week and then drove right to Texas. And uh, I moved to Dallas, Texas. And I started working for them about five, six months later, just breaking their balls, calling them constantly. What do you need? When do you need a guy? I could come in and do whatever you want. You know, it was that. And then while I was waiting to work for them, we 
a group of us that all moved there together at the same time. It was like five of us living in an apartment like animals, <laughs> <laughs> like animals. Right. And uh, we all started going around town and just go to every company, all five of us. Like we can fix cables. I can fix amplifiers. We can do this. We can, you know, we know how to do all this stuff. None of us knew anything practically. Right. Fake it till you make it, baby. Yeah. Just lie. Lie your way into the door. So we, we all got jobs while we waited to, for our careers to take off or die, you know, do whatever. And that was the start. And they, they gave me a shot. Richard Bratcher, president of the company. I walked in for the interview and there's the Australian guy that was on the floor of Gillette Stadium. And uh, they looked at my you know resume, like as if it meant anything to them. And uh, they said, yeah, you finished electronics school. That's great. You're never going to fix anything. And I said, what? Yeah, mate, we don't do that here. Like if you break something, you're going to mail it back and we're, we're going to send, send you, you a replacement. Yeah. Yeah. And then I was like, why did I do all of that? <laughs> why? But that was the start. And they beat me up in the shop for six weeks. You know, I went to every department, amplifiers and drives and speakers and the wood shop and cables where nobody wanted to go. Uh, but I did wind up uh, working on consoles funny enough, because I had a practical experience on repairing gear and the other interns hated me. They thought I was in the greatest place on earth because I was playing with consoles all day long. What they didn't know is that I had pink noise going through them with headphones, every single knob, every single switch while noise was going on to my headphones to pick up any scratches or, you know, anything that sounded weird while I was moving a knob, I'd have to write down and then I'd have to go back and fix it. And it was tedious and it was exacting. But What's pink noise? Is it, I mean, I know what white noise is. Is it the same kind of thing? Is it different frequency? So white noise is uh, when you when you have the TV, the old analog TVs between stations, the white screen yeah. poltergeist, that's white noise. It's it's all frequency at all, at equal volume. Pink noise is, uh, use the pinking filter. And every octave from like, say, 100 cycles to 200 cycles, 200 cycles to 400 cycles, every time you increase it by an octave, the noise goes down by 3 dB. So you'd have this slope that tilts down as you go up the high end. So white noise is used to test electronics, like ICs and tubes and things like that. And pink noise is used to test components, speakers. If you put white noise to speakers, you could probably get away with it with like an 18-inch speaker, 15, maybe a 12. But if you put one through a high-end device, it will pop immediately because you're putting, you know, we can only hear up to 20 kilohertz. <laughs> Hopefully at my age, I can still hear somewhere reasonably close. <laughs> I, don't, I don't really know anymore. Um, but yeah, that's the difference. Uh, it's just a different kind of tests patterns if you would you know you got all right so you're so dbs is decibels for anybody mm -hmm. that's like what the hell are you talking about and decibels is to make it stupid simple for me because i'm an idiot is is basically just the loudness of it yeah and, were you talking about sound pressure levels yeah yeah that's that's subjective you hear crazy things oh you know the guitar is 140 well it's actually not because you would be bleeding out the eyes at that point <laughs> <laughs> but yes uh, sound pressure levels and uh so these are two different 
things. You, people tend to conflate them at a sound pressure level and a, a dB in the electronic scale, dBV, dBU. They're different things. So before we confuse anybody, it's just uh, they're measures used to test electronic equipment. And it's just a noise that won't blow up components when you're doing it. Why, when people do sound check, do they use one and two all the time? Because for anybody that doesn't know anything about sound and anything about anything, you've been to a show and heard the guy up there going, one, two, one, one, two, one, two. And after a while, you're like, oh, my God. Why do they? Why is it that? Because you lift on three. Well, I know that. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a habit. I used to use vowels. As a matter of fact, I got in huge trouble with that. Vowels. A-E-I-O-U. Hey, yeah. A-E-I-O-U. I don't know why. I just, I when I mixed monitors, I used vowels. It seemed to be the thing that would give people the most trouble. And I could just, you know, make it sound reasonably good, depending what box I had in front of me. I didn't know if it was something like, you need the two for the T's. Maybe. Like if you uh, were trying, I always wondered that. Cause like, I mean, you know that I was a roadie for a time. Yeah. Not great at it, but I did it for a while and loved it. And sometimes I would get asked to go up and talk ironically into the microphone while they did sound check. And I remember there was one engineer, you probably know him because you know everybody that had me reading Dr. Seuss books because he was so annoyed with people with the one and the two that you would go up there and he would give you like Fox socks on Fox or something. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen guys go up with a newspaper. They'll they'll read a newspaper or just anything not to have, I don't know, anything not to drive people crazy. Now, I mean, everybody's driving everybody nuts with Steely Dan or, you know, uh, what is that? Random Access Memories, a Daft Punk record. Yeah. Everybody, you know, that's a big one. But now, you know, if you play a Steely Dan track in a sound system, you're getting shit for it. No matter how good it sounds, it's just... <laughs> It's, it's the no to, yeah. stairway sign on Wayne's World at the guitar shop. It's like, yeah. just please, yeah. please <laughs> don't. <laughs> can you please just, don't. Can you can just you not, <laughs> please? Yeah, but that's um, that was that was the uh, generally the start to to my touring career. What was, was the gig? Where? What? What band was it that you were like? Okay, I think I made it. Do you remember? Oh, it's it still hasn't happened, really. <laughs> no, I don't. I don't mean that like a to be comical, but like they're all to me super important. Like at every, like I always learn something, no matter who I'm with, because I, you know, I started off doing a ton of rock bands and funk bands, and there's a little bit of a, a similarity between the two, how how you approach mixing it, um, and then there were country bands. And then there were R and B acts, and but and then nowadays you have a lot of acts with tracks, or you get a, an artist who's a he or a she, and that's your single focus. You know, everybody calls it like the money channel, like the, your vocalist, uh, because it's the only thing to the point where you start ignoring band members because it becomes more important to make sure that one thing is it it's not an approach i have but you see it a lot and you hear it a lot um i think i i was really fortunate um with godsmack i'd have to say that was a very fortunate thing because i had 
dabbled in mixing, actually touching gear and operating a console. Because even when I got the job at, at Shoko, um, I was not really mixing anything. I was a PA monkey. I was a mechanic. I didn't do anything. I just put it up, sat there, waited for something to burn, replaced it, and that was it. I, I was a pit crew member, if that is so, something of an analogy. Yeah. I, I, I worked on the car. Somebody else drove it. Um, but during that time, I got sent out on a couple of tours where there was nobody to operate like a monitor console, which is the, the console that people, that the artists are listening to on stage for all the wedges so they can hear themselves. There was nobody there. And I already had, you know, I know what I'm doing. So I wound up mixing monitors for Iggy Pop. And that was a rough one, right? <laughs> um, they must have smelled the, the new on me. You know, he had already been around a lot. I didn't know the history of him. I was not a... When you're, a, a, when you're a, a new crew person, they can smell the new on you, and it's it the the hazing and yeah. the ball busting. It's on an epic. Like I basically look at the years that I worked on cruise as like basic training for the years I was on the air at AAF because it prepared me to be able to take an amount of ball busting that I think most people, especially I think most women in a room full of guys, would not even volunteer to take. Yeah, you you the girls definitely. Hands down, get it worse. And I've always made the joke, like, no matter where you are, anywhere on planet Earth, at 1.30 in the morning, there's always a woman pulling feeder somewhere. And that right? was the me. Guys, yeah, the guys are smoking cigarettes. They've, they've abandoned everything, or they're standing around a truck telling each other what they did the night before, and there's some woman over there with four guys. Come on, let's go. Let's get, let's get the this done. The feeder cable is the first stuff that they unpack <laughs> because it's the, the cable that plugs into the electrical panel of the building and feeds the power for everything. And so, therefore, if you go in reverse, it's the last thing to get packed up yeah. because you need the power to take everything else apart and it's big and it's dirty and it's heavy and heavy. it's a thankless job and it's what they give the noobs. Yeah. You always know that you're fucked when they're like, take care of the feeder cable. Yeah. You want to, so I'll, I'll give you, I'm probably going to tell you a couple things I shouldn't. But my, <laughs> my, my very, very first day touring was the Moody Blues. I was so excited. I was like, I'm finally on tour. I'm on my way. I'm doing this job. And uh, I ran the feeder cable backward. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I didn't want to tell anybody. I didn't want to tell anybody that I'd done it. So I, I reversed, I think, uh, almost 600 feet at, in 50-foot sections. You know, I turned it around myself. I didn't tell the stagehands, nothing, in a baseball field in Vancouver. And I was so mortified that I had done it. I didn't want to tell anybody like your first day, this is really oh, how it's going to go. That's dude. something that you get your balls busted about 30 years later. And you're yeah. remember that yeah. day. Remember that day. Yep. So yeah, that's, I actually did that. You know, I've, I was not always good at, uh, I was I worked not for always a, any good. <laughs> I worked for a company that, that got smart about it and they built adapters that if you ran the feeder backwards, you went into the bin and it had the other end on it. Yeah, so you didn't have to do that. Yeah. 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 We were God not that them. fortunate. Yeah, <laughs> God we love were not them. that fortunate. <laughs> but it's so, like, as far as like you said, like when I felt like I made it. Yeah. I thought I thought I was 
really doing well when uh, they asked me to mix Godsmack because that was really it was it was an unknown everything. Uh, I didn't know anything about him. I didn't I, like I'm from the area, but I was living in Texas, so I didn't know anything about them as a local band. I, I had by that time I had done, you know, Moody Blues, Linda Ronstadt, Soundgarden, um, the Beastie Boys. I think Janet Jackson, Phil Collins. That was like those were the first. That was the first group of bands that I toured with, and then. Um, I got a call from the company and said, Hey, you got to go out and take care of these guys. They're from your neck of the woods. They're going to blow up huge. Uh, they need a guy. Uh, and it was for Ozfest in 99, right? The Sabbath reunion. Yeah. I remember things, it. Right? I was there. Yeah. So uh, we got to rehearsals in Florida and we had one day with them and it was awful. Is this where they- I met you? It may have been. I think that's where I met you was that tour when it came home. Oh, mo- most likely, yeah. Yeah. But it was uh, the first show, horrific. I mean, <laughs> Elvis, Sully was throwing things everywhere. Just Elvis. Right. Oh, we call, every singer's an Elvis. Every singer's an Elvis. Every drummer's a Ringo. You know, I call bass players Jockos, you know. And uh, guitar players, they they never really bother anybody. So you, just, you can call them by their own name. You, there's no story to tell where you have to hide the artist's name. So. Oh, man. Yeah, but the first two shows, they were not good. They were, you know, I was probably going to get fired. And uh, their tour manager at the time, Bob Dallas, called me on the day off and said, hey, hey. Frankie. Bob Dallas sounded like he had been ripping the filters off his cigarettes since he was four. Yeah, that guy was had, He sounded like Wolfman Jack to give like a radio yeah. reference. Like that's what he sounded like. Yeah, God bless him. Uh, he called me and said, these guys want to talk to you. Uh, come over to the hotel. And I went over to the hotel they were staying in and it was uh, mayhem, right? Because it was the first time I talked to them since the rehearsal at the first show because Ozfest is like, oh, you got five minutes before the next band goes on. It's no conversations. Get, get up, get off, get up, get There's off, a get difference up, between being the band that's the headliner. Like in this instance, Black Sabbath has a different setup yeah. than every other band on the main stage of Ozfest because it's their show. When you're the headliner, you can do as much as you want, take up as much of the stage as you want, take as long to sound check if you want. And the lower down, the earlier the band goes on in the night, the less time they've had to prepare. Yeah, yeah pretty much. The big kids get to stay up late. It's right. the, 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 the other kids get to go away in the afternoon, go play, you know. But uh, I went over and I met them and they were super nice guys. I was like, wow, this is not the dude that I'm seeing, you know, standing in front of me on stage. He's a psychopath when he's out there. And uh, a couple of a couple of hours of a conversation with the guys about how to smooth things out for them made all the difference. And uh, I kind of settled in and I wasn't so new anymore. Um, And things worked out pretty good, you know, 13 years uh, with those guys. I spent seven of them, you know, behind the monitor console on stage with them. And uh, the next six and a half years at front of house. And that was really the, that was the turning point for me. Um, And that happened in the middle of the Metallica tour on St. Anger. Um, Is that the In the Round tour? 
Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, their front of house guy retired and they pulled me into a dressing room one night after a show and they said, you need to make a decision. And I was like, well, if I'm, you know, you're not happy with the work I'm doing, I guess you can hire somebody else. I'll help you find somebody. He's got no douchebag. Do you, uh, you want to stay mixing monitors or you want to move to front of house? And I was like, oh, I'm going to front of house. He's like, you know, you can always come back and mix monitors for us if it doesn't work out. I was like, there's no chance I'm ever going back to that chair again, dude. I'm getting away from you. So anybody that, so to explain the difference, because like we talked about before, the front of house mix is the is the, the area in the middle of the floor at the arena where you're mixing the band so that you're in the crowd oh. and the, the sound is for the crowd. Explain why it is that a band needs a second board and a second, and they need the monitor wedges, the speakers that they the singer always puts his foot on. Yeah, the Scott Stapp speaker that everybody imagines, you know, the with arms wide open speaker that he puts his foot on, the Captain Morgan speaker. Yeah. Why is it that bands need a whole other sound guy just for themselves? Um. So to to to, in this age, we'll we'll talk about the modern age, right? Most artists now are on in-ear monitors, right? They're, it's basically headphones with a radio system. So everybody on stage has a, a left and right. I, at front of house for the audience, only have a single left and right. So I only produce one left and right. The whole audience listens to that. The guy on stage has to produce a left and right for everybody who's on stage. And everybody wants to hear things differently. Monitor engineer is uh, is an unsung hero. They the garbage men of sound, really. You know, they they get beat up by the band, but the singer needs to hear something different than the guitar player. Than well, the that's drummer. what I was that's what I was getting to. And you come from a musical background as a guitar player, which is why I asked you about that earlier. So, so to use Godsmack as a, as an example, why does what Sully hears? Why is it different from what Tony hears? And why is what Tony hears? Why does it have to be different from what Robbie hears? Well, they're positionally, they're in different places on stage. Like the singer is going to be 90% of the time with the drummer right on his back. So the drums are not really having to be that loud where he's standing because he's already getting them. But he might not hear what's off to one side of the stage or the other where other amplifiers are. So the speakers that are sitting on the floor in front of him, you're going to put the things he's missing in them according to how he wants to hear. And you have to have, you know, a very, very... Uh, good skill set to deal with that because you're dealing with four personalities or five or however many people there are on stage, uh, mood swings, whether the guy shows up, you know, to work that night or to play it and it changes, you know, and you got to be able to deal with it. Imagine being the monitor guy for Slipknot. Oof. Wow. <laughs> Nine guys banging on hammers kegs. and yeah. kegs. And, yeah. Can I have a little more keg in my ear, please? <laughs> I haven't heard the horrible anvil sound in a 10, 20 minutes. Bang on it again. <laughs> so so when you when you go from the monitor guy that's like off to the side of the stage, like if you're watching the band, you kind of see him off to the side. Yeah, generally. And he's yeah. usually the guy that in between songs the lead singer's yelling at. Yeah, yeah. I've seen that. I, I, if you know the monitor engineer's name, from the audience, he's having a bad <laughs> night. You know, Brian, Brian, can you make the sound like music? Can, yeah. I can't hear anything. Well, yeah. for you, it got to the point with Godsmack where 
you ruined one of their biggest songs for me and I think a lot oh, of other people God. that know the band <laughs> because I Stand Alone became Frank Scambalone. And now yeah. I'm ruining it for everyone that's listening yeah. to this interview because can, Sully would sing it that way sometimes. I heard him play that riff. The the We were finishing up. We were the, the album before that. And I, I forgive me for not remembering uh, what album cycle we were in. They tended to run together because we never went home. Those guys worked. Yeah. Um, but he was on stage just putzing around one day with his guitar and he, he busts out the guitar riff from that. And I stopped. I was like, oh, that's a that's a good riff right there. You should open a song with that. He turns around, asshole, I'm going to open the next record with this. <laughs> right. So, he, you know, they they were joking around and he had they carried the studio with them in, in the in the dressing room. So they would go in and, you know, jam out and record it. And they recorded it, you know, the, the demo of it on, on the tour. And then they took it in and. When I saw them next, after you know hearing the record, I was like, "Oh, this is really good." Didn't even put two and two together. At that point, I was touring with Seven Dust. I was mixing them on the Animosity tour right before that record came out, and uh, you know, Morgan Rose had heard the song, and Morgan started screaming that at me every day, and I, it just became a thing. And it's <laughs> they did a show together on New Year's at the Hard Rock. Do you remember? Yep. That show, that was the end of the Seven Dust show and right into the Godsmack tour that was about to start. It was my last day with Seven Dust and my, the beginning of the tour with Godsmack. Morgan started screaming that thing out and it became the thing. Yep. Everybody thought it was the funniest joke. Still funny have, to me. I know it? you're sick of it, but still funny to me. It's hilarious. I love those guys to death. My God. Well, but, it's it's funny that Sully was so... was was so up about I Stand Alone to you, but I remember him showing up at my condo in that big red pickup truck going, you need to come outside, I need you. And I was like, what? And I went out and he's like, I need to play this for you and I need you to not bullshit me because I'm on a deadline. We were asked to put this song out because it was the mummy of the soundtrack. Oh, right, and, yeah, yeah. And I need to know if it's good and this could make or break the band and make or break the career and... Sully and I have always kind of had our careers kind of going in these same places at the same time. And I remember he was doing like 100 miles an hour on 495 in that pickup truck. And that was the first time I listened Big to red. I Stand Alone. Yeah. And then it ended. And when I went to open my mouth, he was like, listen to it again. Because he was afraid that I hated it and wanted me to hear it twice before I gave him my opinion. And even like you listen to that song once, you know it's going to be a smash. I mean, it's an odd, like you said, like the riff is awesome. Yeah, the riff is, it's one of those, again, it's a musical thing. You hear it, you're going to remember it. Yeah. Um, and yeah, now everyone that, will think of you. I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> no offense to anybody. Man, that joke is like oh, old as fuck. Now. I know, but we're old as fuck, dude. I hate to tell you, it's been that I long. I know. Uh, the other night, I'll tell you some funny, like speaking of Seven Dust, my wife and I watched the, the live stream the other night. Oh, the Animosity live stream. Oh, it was crushing, right? I know. So we were sitting on the couch and she looks at me and she's like, do you think Clint is hot? And I was like, what the fuck? What? 
And she's like, no, in the shirt. He's wearing that collared shirt buttoned all the way up with the long <laughs> sleeves. I was like, Jesus Christ, woman. <laughs> when I, I interviewed know. Morgan recently, we talked about him and John Connolly specifically and what specimens of health and fitness those guys are now compared to Seven Dust back in the day when we yeah. were all partying like 24 idiots. 24-7 Seven Dust. Yeah, and now you see these guys and John's doing triathlons and Clint's doing crossfit and it's like who are you guys yeah they were formidable they still are i mean that, oh yeah that, they were that's another bunch to like you hang on hang on for dear life hang on it's just it never ends there you was a time that if you were a band and you played if you toured with seven dust it was like guaranteed that you were going to become famous because they were that band that literally broke everybody yeah but the thing was like they were burning everybody alive if they opened for them you know, they, that was a band you don't follow. Oh yeah, still no. is. I mean, still, still is. They're they're they've not dropped a step. No, uh, arguably it's, it's they're hard. better now because they're all healthy and they're all you know for the most part sober and like, you know, it's just that we're all getting a little older now. I, I don't know. Again, I, maybe they're uh, maybe you could say they're healthier, but there was an element of danger. Yeah, to that band on stage every oh, yeah. night. Yeah, right? and that's really the the hair raising stuff. You know, there's there's been a few artists in my life where the first time you see it in front of you and the hair stands up on your neck doesn't happen very often. I mean, I'm not jaded. I it still happens, but uh, they were one of them. You know, and, and uh, again, I'm very fortunate to have spent a lot of time with a lot of great bands and artists that I had a lot of respect for, and uh, some of them I hated when I when I got to the, when I got there, but learned real fast, like, well, this is, this is not what I thought it was, or they, they're not the people I thought, you know, but well, and, yeah, and you know, if you're spending day and night, month after month, stuck in a tour bus, you know, under stress and, and traveling and all that, you really do get to know how people really are. Yeah. That's not a joke. That's, that's, that's not to be taken lightly. That's a very, very true statement. Because I ask the bands all the time, like, you know, when it comes to, like, keeping a bus clean and, like, you know, I mean, imagine being married to five different people and you're all stuck in a giant metal tube driving around the country. Like, who would sign up for that? What guy would have five wives in a bus and drive around the United States for three months? Who would sign up for that? Nobody. It can be rough. You know, that's that's the part of it nobody really wants to talk about. You know, cheese feet, cold farts, pizza that's been sitting for four hours before you get to it. There's like, you know, eight people you don't know already there when you show up. Somebody shits in the bathroom on the bus. Oh, God <laughs> almighty. It's always somebody's guest too, right? Of course, because everybody that's on the bus knows not to poop on the bus. Yeah. It's the rule. It's unbelievable. The, the, the horrors... <laughs> The humor and the horrors, it really goes both both ends of the spectrum. When when you pull in, and I want to go through like the day. Okay. So there's so you go to load in. And when you're on a tour and and like you said before, the company that you work for, Claire Brothers, and your yeah. career you've been around for so long, you're you're on big tours. These are big, giant, moving machines. So if you're doing a stadium tour, it's 50 trucks, or they started building the scaffolding for the stage last week and whatever. But if you're doing like a big arena tour, 
where you don't have the stage being built way ahead of time and, and the whole tour is like moving together day to day. Run me through the, the day sheet of like from the time the first truck pulls in and like what the schedule is and, and the pecking order of what truck gets unpacked, who goes to work first. Uh. Because okay. you're not the guy that gets out of bed first because you're the audio guy. You're the front of house, the sound guy. I still get up pretty early. I'm not I'm not a two o'clock arrival guy. Um, again, I, I, I still give a shit. So I can't allow other people to take the heat for what I have to do. I have right. to be a little bit responsible for it. Um, well, I'm, I'm, I'm responsible for all of it in the end, what it sounds right. like. And it, yeah. if, if they've done something I'm not cool with, I can't make them change it at three in the afternoon, right? right. It's just, it's not going to happen. So um, the very first people that go in, believe it or not, are the caterers, uh, the unsung heroes of touring, right? Uh, most of the time, tours now carry a, a cooking crew with them. Um, they'll go in, they start cooking. They've shopped the night before. They'll have, you know, refrigerators in the trucks or a way to keep fresh food fresh overnight. And they'll start doing breakfast and coffee. Um, following them right in are the riggers. And if anybody doesn't know what a rigger is, they're the psychopaths of every tour. They're the guys that climb up into the ceiling and make sure that we have uh, motors, CM, like the old uh, motors to hang lighting from, hang sound from. Yeah, all of the chains that you see holding the PA and the lights and everything, they're all hanging from the beams at the garden. Yeah. And some psycho, it's usually the craziest well, most, person. Yeah, the local guys. Uh, like the tour rigger will basically oversee where to put them, depending on you know weight limits and restrictions and what I have to move today. And if I move this, what else has to move because it's in the way of something else. Yeah, because like to go back to you and the dominoes, if the riggers hang things in a place, it affects your job 12 hours later and what it sounds like in the arena because they're yeah. moving your flashlight around. Yeah, basically. things ha things have to move. On a, you have to be flexible, right? We're not, we don't, we don't work in an, a vacuum. Like every, every decision they make early is a domino effect later on. So the caterers go in to cook, the riggers go in to hang chains with the crew. The next thing that's going to come in generally is lighting and power for both, for everybody. Power will come in. Generally, the, the rigging package will have everybody's electrical requirements and the wiring on it. So that gets Damn laid out. feeder cable. Feeder cable. That's right. Lots of it. Lots of it. Every department, video, lighting, catering, rigging, audio, uh, automation, if you have moving set, moving lights, things like that. So you'll have, you know a ton of people in there running wire on the floor first thing in the morning. If you're carrying a stage, you know, a specialty stage or something that's oddly shaped, like you'll see, you know, Ariana Grande or uh, the Katy Perry, even Luke, you know, the, my current guy. Uh, Luke have, Bryant. Luke, not just yeah. Luke, yeah. Uh, the American Idol, Luke Bryant. <laughs> they have uh, specialty stages, stuff that's specific to them. And that comes in, it gets built on the opposite end of the arena. And it becomes this massive jigsaw puzzle where one department's working on one end, one guy's over here, another guy. Audio will generally come in. Uh, they'll, they'll start bringing the pieces for the sound system into the building. Um, then it's going to be like set and lighting. 
will come in and by about 2.30 in the afternoon, I'd say, maybe earlier, the big pieces of the puzzle are built and they all start getting put together. The lighting goes up, the sound goes up in the air, they'll roll a stage in underneath it. Very rarely do these productions anymore have a stage sitting in place. It's just, it takes too long to put stuff up on it. So most guys will carry a stage and the stage might already have the band's gear on it when it's rolling because it has to be built at, you know, way earlier in the day because everything else is going to take so long. But that last hour, say like from 1.30 to 2.30, 2 to 3, everything gets put together like one big chunk, 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 stage, thrust, consoles, and everything lights up because then you can power everything because it's in place. And then all of it happens at once. And some artists have like sound check parties. So, you know, three o'clock in the afternoon, we have a bunch of guests coming in, VIPs. From- well, that's why I was going to bring it up because like when we were at the radio station, we would give away these sound check parties. Yeah. And people would always be like, why do we have to go in the middle of the afternoon? Like I got to get out of work early and go or whatever. And it's because there's a timeline yeah. that gets counted back from when the show must stop, yeah, which is curfew. And normally yep. it's 11, 11.30, and the band and the crew and the production gets fined if they go yeah. over curfew. That's not that's no joke there. So you got to count it back. So if the show has to be done by 11 and the band wants to play for 90 minutes and it takes 20 minutes to go from the band before the headliner and you count it back, sound check for the – got to do it at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. That's why you yeah. got to get out of work. Yeah, and, uh, you know, some of the calls – the call times, they, some tours, you got to start at three in the morning. Some tours, you know, you can start at seven. I, I believe on one very, very large tour, I think they started at 1 a.m., you know, the night before or the, the morning before. So they're, they're looking at almost a 20-hour workday, you know, before they're done at 11, 22, 23 hours. And, they, you know, you can't do a show the next day that's more than 150 miles away. And even then, nobody's sleeping, you know. But it is, it's not for everybody. We'll put it that way, right? Because even if people come out who are the greatest sound guys in the world might not be able to hack the schedule. That's it's it's what a lot of the, the older bands have talked about. You know, you get a band like the Rolling Stones or something, and it's not that they can't still play. It's not that they can't do those two hours on stage. But in a lot of ways, the rigors of the touring and the travel, which is why big, huge, iconic bands like that, the bands will fly so that they don't have to be on the road so much or why they set up like Aerosmith sets up a residency in Vegas where they can have some kind of normalized schedule so that they can prolong their careers because the touring part just physically takes so much out of you. Yeah, I I don't think anybody really sleeps properly in a moving vehicle. As comfortable as, you know, modern tour buses are, we sleep in, you know, pretty good quarters. If anybody's ever been in the service, you, you know, you know, it's not, not an army You're not getting shot barracks. at. Yeah, you're not. No, it, but it's not, uh, It's it, I guess it'd be closer to like sleeping in a submarine. Uh, you know, everybody makes a joke about like it's a submarine ride. We're going from here to there for 20 hours in the bus. But we have TVs, we have a kitchen, we have a place to pee, things like that. The, the amenities are not terrible. But it's like well, you're sleeping in a coffin. Yeah, and the coffin's rattling. It moves. And, 
not everybody's on the same schedule. So you have some people walking around, you know, it's like sleeping in the middle of a moving frat party. Sometimes <laughs> it's a little, it can, it can be a little much. So I don't know that you, uh, the rest ever comes until the day off when you go to a hotel or you're, you know, somewhere not moving that, that gets to a lot of people doing that part of it. I've never had trouble sleeping ever. I mean, I can sleep anywhere and I mean, I fall asleep. Um, my grandmother That's, used to say that if you can sleep like that, you have a clear conscience. Yeah, I don't have a clear conscience. I'm just tired. <laughs> <laughs> when but you, yeah, oh, go ahead. Uh, it's it's. Um, I, I I might be like overstating it. It's just not. It's not terrible. It's not a horrible life. No, it's, it's just something that you to get used to, and not everyone can do it. I mean, when no. I was driving trucks, I had to sleep in the sleeper cab, and it. Yeah. You, you know, you're sleeping with a rolling engine the whole time because it's 90 degrees outside. And if you want to sleep with air conditioning, the truck's got to be going and it's loud and it's. Well, that's the other half of it is like we just talked about what happens during the day. Like while all this is going on during the day, we have a fleet of truck drivers and bus drivers that are sleeping. They, they work on the other side of the schedule. So when we're going to bed at night, their day is just starting. Yeah, so nope. so basically how it works, you know, with anybody that's a truck driver or whatever, like you got to have so many hours that you're not driving, that you're not in the truck. Yeah. So they bring the buses and they bring the trucks to the venue. You guys go to work. Those guys get driven to the hotel so that they can go to sleep. But they're, they're nocturnal because you guys drive at night after the show. Yeah. So these guys are now having to sleep at 3 o'clock in the afternoon or whatever to make sure that they're fresh and legal to drive when the yeah. show is over. And then you guys sound check, the band sound check, they open the doors, everybody storms in, the bands go through, and then you, your band, so you're working for the headliners, so you actually are now quote unquote working now. Yeah. Like you're actually doing the job that it took you all day to set up, you're actually mixing the show now. Yeah. And when it's over, we all leave and go home and go to bed. And as soon as the show's over and the house lights come on, you guys go back to work. Yeah. Yep. Ch chairs get off the floor. Everything starts coming down, gets taken apart, like in a hurry, in a hurry. You know, that's that's the part that nobody ever sees, right? How fast it comes down, you know, and it's the question you hear, you know, one of the questions you hear through your whole career. How long did it take you guys to set this up? Oh, about nine hours. How long does it take to get it down? About two, two and a half. What? I mean, it's it's a high speed construction site in both directions. It's uh, it can be dangerous. Um, you got to pay attention. This isn't the 1970s where everybody's yeehawing anymore, right? These are <laughs> uh, oh, it's like a, a much smarter industry than it was when I started. And I, I you know, I hear the the bitching about the millennial this and the young kids that, but everybody I've had on my cruise for the last 10 years are much smarter than I was when I got out here. Education aside, but they, they are already, they're much, they're much more attuned to the job they're going to do. And that's in every department, right? Video is much more complex. Everything is digital networks, IP addresses and computers. And, uh, it, it requires a different process than it would have when I started where you just had to physically be able to deal with being up 18 hours and know how to wire, you know, basic electrical stuff. It's a lot different now. 
and that kind of weeds people out. It weeds down. Uh, and then it really does become like we see a lot of uh, people come out of the military, believe it or not. Uh, they get trained and tacked out there. Um, it's 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 turned into a different type of person in the touring world. And uh, a lot of people don't give them the credit they, they deserve. Well, then you look oh. at it. You look at a venue that's got a show going out. You know, if you've ever gone to the garden for like, it's different if it's the same band two or three nights in a row because you guys can leave the gear, come back tomorrow. You don't got to set it up because it's already set up. Yeah. But everybody's seen a week or two at an arena, and one night Mariah Carey's there, and the next night Slayer's there, and the next night so and so's there. So you guys are wheeling your stuff out, passing versions of yourselves on a different tour waiting for you to hurry the fuck up so they can start their day and you're just finishing yours. Yeah, and I, I'll add another group in there that doesn't get enough credit, the house crews that turn it over. There's sometimes where um, the seasons between hockey and basketball overlap and you have a show, hockey, into basketball, into a show, into basketball. These guys, like, they're they're turning it from an ice surface to... Parquet. Uh, yeah, right. So uh, we tend to forget them. It's like, oh, shit, they're still working on the dasher today. Or these guys are still taking the, the floor, putting flooring in that we can put over the top of the ice. Like, yeah, they, they've been here for a week. Like, this is the fourth time they've had to turn the building over. Yeah, it's the Shut NHL up, playoffs dude. right now, a-hole. Like, there's yeah. stuff going on. Yeah, zip it up. There was, there was an instance um, with uh, – Funny enough, it was Bob Seeger in Detroit at the old palace at Auburn Hills. He did 14 nights over 18 days. And we had to keep moving out because the Pistons were still playing there. So we do four shows, take the whole thing down, move out, go to a hotel for a day, come back, load the whole thing back in there, do another three shows, take it out again. Basketball team would come in. You know, it got to the point where we'd load in and like, oh, hey, Mel, how's it going? Oh, we're going to be a little bit behind this morning. You know, um, and that's the thing you see, like when you have the days off. There's some instances like you just it's a lot of work for a lot of people. You know, that's the other half we don't talk about. Like now while we're off is like how many people are really not working. It well, isn't it isn't just us. Right. There's a well, lot we were of people affected. That was one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you because it keeps coming up over and over again on the podcast and it keeps coming up over and over again in cocktails in the war room. Obviously, we're not we're not living in a normal world. And so the industry, Will Hunt from Evanescence said it beautifully when I talked to those guys a few months ago that our biggest export in the United States is our culture. It's the thing that churns our economy globally more than I think most people realize. The movies, the music, the theme parks, like our culture is our biggest export. So when we talk about a strong economy, the business you and I both work in, the music business, is part of what drives the U.S. economy. And that part of our economy shut down first and most likely is going to be the last part of the economy that comes back when we get to the point where we're allowed out of our hermetically sealed homes again after the coronavirus is at a place where it's manageable. And in between that, there's 
thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people that can't work. And every band that I talk to talks about the importance of their crew. I've asked every band this because they've all talked about what happens to their crew when you guys aren't on the road because you guys just go from tour to tour to tour. And, and when there's no tours, there's no job. And I asked them like, okay, well, what is your tour like if you don't have a good guitar tech? What is your tour like if you don't have a good sound guy? What is your tour like when you don't have a good lighting guy? And they're like, the whole show goes to shit. Like they're the ones that make us look and sound good. And now what? You do whatever you have to. You do whatever you have to. I know uh, tons of people in the industry have gone into like, you know, they're, they're driving for Amazon, uh, Uber Eats, um, construction jobs. It's, uh, it's really, uh, it's telling like how flexible most of the people in the business are. Um, you know, Zito Zito uh, is a production manager for Katy Perry opened up rock and rolls in Nashville where they're built, they're, they're baking. He and his wife opened a bakery and they would deliver food. Um, everybody figured something out or didn't, you know, but for the most part, I see a lot more um, creative thinking, you know, and, and we're a creative business. Everybody, the thought process, like what we do is not typical. So the solutions to our problems aren't typical either. Um, it's really hard to, to imagine it. And now we don't have to, we're, we're living it, but it's not, uh, it's definitely not the end. Like we said, we were speaking earlier. It's like, you know, tomorrow afternoon, I, I this will come back and it will come back roaring. Uh, people want to go out. People want to go do things. They don't want to be at home. No, you know, not that they hate their houses. No, spouses, but everybody, but- everybody, like the last show I went to, was at the end of February in Vegas, I saw Bush at the House of Blues. If I had known that was gonna be the last show I went to for the whole fucking year, I would have ordered an extra beer, I would have sang more songs, I would have savored it more because I never, I always knew how much I loved going to concerts, but when you're told you can't go for 10 or 11 months or a whole year, you really understand how much you miss it and how much you love it. Yeah. And I mean, we're talking about it from the point of, oh, I love being there and going it. You know, now you imagine argue. you're that boy. I love to be able to work and pay my mortgage. Yeah, there's a little bit of, uh, you know, it's it's hard to say. It's hard to describe. You know? Well, unfortunately, I know what that ends like too, because my radio station's gone. So <laughs> I know oh, what that. God. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> I don't mean to laugh, but yeah, it's yeah. Things come to an end. I mean, the appreciation that I've gathered for for what I had while I had it is uh, it's it's indescribable, you know, to think that like it's a good possibility that I could never go back to it again. But I don't think that. I just don't think that. Like, eventually, we're gonna do this again. And yeah, we'll, the concerts be... are gonna come back. The question oh, yeah. is when and how. Yeah, I I don't know. Honestly, that's if anybody tells you they know what's going to happen, they're full of shit. I mean, this is uh, this is an animal, a virus, a thing that you know. I'm I'm a sound guy. 
what am I, what do I know? Am I going to go argue with Dr. Fauci or I'm going to argue with the CDC or, you know, if you think you know more than any of these people, you, you might be in the wrong room. You know, I'm just, I'm not that guy. I have to follow. My whole life has been like, follow a procedure, a process, something you can repeat over and over again. I have no idea what these people do, but I'm really thankful that they're all doing it. You know, everybody, you know, Oxford Labs and the viral team working on antibodies and all the science that goes in behind it. We should be really thankful that they're doing it and supporting Thank God us. that Pfizer sold many of those dick pills as they did because that's where all that money went is trying yeah. to find this vaccine now. <laughs> yeah, so everybody that was an that's accident. had those boners for the last 20 yeah. years, thank you guys for buying those pills. Yeah, all us old dudes. Uh <laughs> But like, but it comes up all the time where, you know, okay, well, when is it going to happen? So this week, Dr. Fauci said that when we get to 70% immunization, that that's, he literally said that's when concerts will probably come back. But, you know, that that's a number that like, uh, we can't even, so the reason why the concerts aren't back yet is because... It's not because the bands don't want to tour. It's not because the crews don't want to tour. It's not because of anything. It's because at the end of the day, there's liability and concerts have massive liability. We've all heard the stories about the riots and the, the trampling and the pyro accident or the this or the that. Like the concert business is not without risk. And this is a risk that's probably worse than any risk they've ever had to deal with. I would think. Yeah, I mean, it's, there's, well, we, like I said, we had H1N1, you know, that uh, the pig virus just fly. So I don't remember what they, what it was. I just remember it was H1N1. Yeah, the swine flu. And it swine was, flu, it, and it you. started in the United States. So, you know, we never called it the American swine flu, but it started well, here. No, that's, you know, like I was in the middle of a, a tour with Stained when it happened and we were doing casinos and it was just like, you know, the, the catering at that point was we were going to go eat at the buffet. Like, oh, no, we're fucking not. I'm not eating in the middle of that. Can you think of a place <laughs> that's less safe to eat in the middle of some kind of viral pandemic than on a, a buffet good day. at a casino? No. On a good day, that's that's not happening. No offense to Caesar's Palace, crab legs, all you can eat bullshit. I'm not doing it. <laughs> Definitely not doing it when Bob from uh, Des Moines has got like a serving tray full of crab legs and hush puppies walking around because he doesn't want to go back for a second trip. But yeah, we've 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 had this before. You know, um, we we've been through 9/11. We've had things happen. Yeah, that disrupted uh, we're, we're the business resilient. in a way. Yeah, yeah. We've we, it, this has taken longer, and I mean, it, maybe you could bitch and moan about you know it didn't have to if everybody had just sat still. You know, I, I always come back to that Michael Madsen line from Reservoir Dogs, right? They get in a fight, and if they hadn't have done what I told them not to do, they'd all still be alive. Yeah, you know? <laughs> it's it's a crass way to put it, but you know, there's got to be some truth to that. Well, and we're, we're living in a world that's more globalized than ever. You know, it's like a plague 100 years ago didn't spread the way it spreads today because we travel and we're so like you could just get on a plane and be in Africa tomorrow. You couldn't yeah. do that 100 years ago. You would get on a steamship and show up three months later. And like it's just a, it's a different world now and trying to 
trying to close borders and airports and who gets let in and who doesn't and who's who's essential and who's not because even though they closed borders the essential people were still coming and going yeah yeah everybody forgot the supermarket workers you know i spent two two days a week at home depot when this started just trying to catch up on home projects that i'd let go or you Poor husbands through this whole thing and your honeydew list man oh <laughs> it was something to do, right? It's right. Just, you know, you take stuff on, but the uh, the the we're resilient people, you know, and we're we're gonna come back. And the the biggest thing about it is that it doesn't matter what language you speak. Everybody is all about coming back to see shows, you know, and they'll do it. It's yeah. it, there's no way it doesn't happen again. It is gonna so, be different though, and and that's the biggest question is like. How do they pull it off? Like, do you have to get the vaccine to go to the show? Do you, is it 70% immunized? Like Dr. Fauci says, how do you prove it? Like, is the band comfortable? Are they not? I mean, there were bands that over the summer were doing those drive-in shows and, yeah, you know, people were trying to figure things out, but it, it it's a question of figuring it out. Like we're yeah, not and it's not going to be an overnight thing where like you just flip a switch and like everybody's on tour. There won't be enough buildings. I mean, literally, you you could sell out every stadium with every band in a weekend. You know, you could that that would probably happen here. You know, we're Americans. We're you know we're arrogant to the point of like we're doing this whether it's good for us or not, <laughs> which is a good thing sometimes, right? Yeah. You just you got to plow through it. You don't listen to everybody telling you you can't do it. You just figure out a way to do it. You know, that's that's where it'll be. It is crazy to like watch, you know, like obviously like everybody else, I've had all this time to, you know, watch TV, binge watch stuff. And it's crazy to watch something like Diners, Drive-Ins and Dives where you're just watching people at a restaurant sitting next to each other, no masks, because oh, the show got recorded now. two years ago, right? <laughs> yeah. And then And then you watch like concert footage and like, you're rubbing up against the sweaty guy next to you and the guy behind you's coughing because he just took a hit off the joint that he smuggled in in his pants and he hands it to you and half hour ago was under his balls and now he's handing it to you like this offering and the lead singer's sweating on you and you're happy about it and he's spitting and like, and it all sounds so glorious now, but it's horrifying, like considering what it is that we're living through right now. Yeah, well, I mean, it goes away. It goes away. It, it, it's not going to stay. People are just, they're not that. Nobody wants to be trapped. Everybody wants to go out. Yeah. They will again. I mean, I'm that, I, I can't state it any other way. You know, I, re, I remember 9-11 clearly. You know, that was a horrific thing. Were you on and tour I, with Godsmack then? Yeah. Yeah, yeah we were loading into uh, Augusta, Augusta, Augusta Civic Center. It was very weird. Um, yeah, we were loading in the caterers. Somebody came down from uh, catering yelling, oh, plane just crashed into the World Trade Center. Oh, it's got to be an accident. That's got to be horrible. That's what my uncle, said. my uncle worked in the building. So uh, let's try and call him. Nothing. Right. So now we're starting to panic a little bit. Oh, the second one just crashed into it. And then, oh, there's another plane that just crashed in Pennsylvania, you know. And then, like, we were out. They were just uh, 
I don't remember whether it was like Civil Air Patrol or some some uniformed personnel showed up and said, we're shutting the building down. You got to go. So we took, put everything back in and uh, went to Portland, Maine. And by the time we got to Portland, it was like a scene from, you know, Jason Bourne. There were snipers on the roofs, helicopters flying around. Uh, we shut down for a couple of days and went to uh, Atlanta to finish the tour. We did a, two or three more shows. Um, and that they was didn't, it. They, they, didn't they play Loco Bazooka for us? Yeah. Yep. The American like, flags, right? Yeah. in front of the PA that day. Yeah. But yeah, it was. But that didn't. Uh, that didn't stop us. Right. You know, and this won't either. Is it nice either. to know how much you guys are appreciated, not only by the way that all the artists have been talking about how important the crews are, but also about how much everybody misses the shows and therefore obviously misses what you guys do? Like, it's got to it's got to make you feel good that there's there's been so much attention to the point where they had to put it into the relief package for the Save Our Stages Act. Because most of the time with an artist that's fairly successful, those guys are going to be okay. But that the, all of these artists have been so worried about the crews. Yeah. Well, Luke, Brian, my current guy, has been nothing less than spectacular. They keep in touch with us. Um, he wrote us a letter a uh, couple weeks before Christmas. You know, he's fully with us. Um, I know a lot of other artists with their crews have been the same. You know, they're doing what they can for everybody. They're trying to keep it in the light. Um, there is uh, Michael Strickland from uh, Bandit Lighting in Nashville, who's been in front of uh, the congressional hearings on it and has been a, a real advocate for all of us and the industry as a whole. It just, it, it's hard not to politicize and I'm not going to because it doesn't do anybody any good, but yeah, it's 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 really hard to, to understate or overstate the the level of concern that a lot of them have shown for us. And these are artists first, not business people. You know, you could argue that however you want, but they make a living having fun. They yeah, know we and have creative. fun doing. It. Yeah, they're they're yeah. the creatives of it, but it's. But they didn't the get into time, it to be a businessman. They got into it for the creative and the fun of it. And Yeah. And they know we're all right there with them. We, we'd love to be out there with you. You know, to the point where, like, you know, you have some artists who just, you know, early on, it looked like they were, like, flouting the rules. Just like, I'm going to go do this anyway. I don't think there's anything mean about it. They just, they want to do it. They want to go out and play. It's, it, it's the nature. It's just the nature of that person. You know, some people are cut out to do this. Some people just don't want to, you know, it's it's hard. You know, you, you can't lay blame. You can't bother people with it. You just have to figure it out. And we will. Yeah. I can't wait because, I mean, luckily for me, you know, I've had this time now to like build my studio and you would be horrified really at nice. how it like, uh, thank you. MCHQ is awesome, but, <laughs> but there may be some coiled cables underneath that aren't, you know, wrapped up as nicely as I should have wrapped them. And <laughs> for the most part, it's pretty good. And, yeah. um, but I've had a lot of time to like 
get this part of things, but I can't wait to be able to grab microphones and go do interviews with bands backstage like I used to. Like, I can't wait to be able to go to the shows. I can't wait to have the shows get announced and start that whole... I mean, it, it feels like I'm living in an alien wasteland between AAF not being around and the whole music business shut down. It's like, what fucking planet am I on? It's nuts. Yeah. The other thing... You know, that it's like we talked about, like, these are creatives. Like at my company, we started VLA, which is a virtual live audience. Uh, and they've used it for like uh, Metallica and uh, People's Choice Awards, FIFA in Europe, where they do events and the audience is brought into the show with screens. If you watch WWE now, they've got a virtual live audience in the stands where people interact you in some instances they can talk to the artist they can do these things from a studio very similar to what we saw with seven dust the other night except they were showing video content of their own this is actually everybody like us online watching the show and your face is in the arena with them and it's crazy they, yeah this didn't exist you know 14, 15 months ago. This is how fast, this is what I mean, like how fast, how creative, how how smart they are, how fast it turned around and came around. And, you know, artists went to live streaming, doing concerts. Under Oath did one from Florida at a, another company down there. I don't remember the, the studio they were in. Um, Dropkicks did them from Fenway. That's right, with uh, Bruce Springsteen. That's right. There's There's things, right? There's there's movement to try and, and help or movement to try and work or however you want to put it. Like, I don't, I've never considered this work. You know, it's, it's something I love doing. Otherwise yeah. I wouldn't be here anymore if I didn't. Well, why, and, yeah. Why would you do it for 30 years if you, if it wasn't for the love of it after a while? I don't you know. know. I honestly don't know. I, I find it hard like to be that guy that's complaining all the time. I mean, I'm a moaner at some point here and there. <laughs> Everybody's going to have a bad day. You just can't have them all in a row. Right. But, I mean, you could be that guy that has like a nine to five cubicle job that for somebody that travels and does what you do, it's like you can't even imagine it. No. this, Like I said, I, I, I realize what I had. You know, I'm going to go sing Cinderella songs now. You know, you don't, <laughs> don't, don't know what, what you got. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> and we're all, we're all feeling a little Tom for these days. Yep. You know? Yeah. It, I'd uh, rather go feel like John Belushi. Is this the first time you spent this much time at home? Yeah. Yep. And like basically your whole adult life. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, not, it's a gift. Like that's, that's the other half. We were talking about some, you know, the glass half full type. Yeah. You know? It's like we have to we have to take, you know, like if if AAF didn't go away, if the you know, if the coronavirus didn't happen, I never would have built a studio in my house. I never would have launched the podcast the way that I did. I never would have taken this jump because I was comfortable in this mechanism and this machine that I was a part of. And why change it? And so now you have to look at it and go, oh, I have this beautiful studio now and there's all these opportunities and things that I'm doing that I never would have done before. And that's super exciting. And also like wow, I'm spending all this time in the house that I spent all those hours out of the house working to pay for it. And it's like, I kind of realized like, oh, there is a certain niceness to being home a little. Yeah. 
My garden, you should have seen my tomatoes this summer, Frank. Oh, I bet they were gorgeous. They were so good. (laughs) They were so good. Oh, God. But it is going to be like, okay, the tomatoes are fine, but I got to get the fuck out of the house. Can I go back to work now? Like, like, can I leave the house? Can I go do something? Can I go to a concert or something? And it sounds like, you know, there's some festivals and things starting to get scheduled. And, you know, you hear big companies like Live Nation starting to, you know, say they're they're starting to use words like not if but when like the language is starting to change and that is making me feel like we're you know even though obviously right now the virus numbers are horrifying still but we know that you know the the vaccine is there and we also know that machine is firing up and that people are starting to get immunized and so you know trying to be optimistic yeah well i mean there's what else are you going to do? Like, <laughs> I, know. I mean, what else are you going to do? Crawl under a rock and just give up. Binge things that. on Netflix. Oh, God. I've, I've seen enough Shit's Creek. Yeah. I love it, though. <laughs> well, that's the thing is that when you tour, you, you've seen every movie. No, I don't. I, I don't. You don't watch anything on the bus? You just get on no. the bus and go to bed? I go to sleep. I Honestly, I go to sleep. It's this. There's nothing. I'm the old guy in the bus now. <laughs> yeah, I remember like I used to be the youngest dude on the tour. And then all of a sudden I became the old guy in the bus. Like, oh. Go to bed, grandpa. The I only thing you're not is the guy grandpa. telling everybody to turn down the music because you're no. literally the guy that turns it up. Yeah, I don't. I don't. Like I said, I sleep through anything. It's 20, 25 years of being on a bus. It's really hard to get off it. Once you're once you get on, it's really hard. It's, you know, you get used to that. Yeah, now you're sleeping in a bed that doesn't move. That doesn't move. That's quiet. That's right. There's no. somebody in it with you. Yeah. Weird. Yeah. I like I said, it's a gift. This was a found year because I have an eight year old at home, and uh, you know she's in. You know she was at school in the house right by computer for since last March up until this week, and uh, she thinks I'm like the nerd. Like, she's gotten so comfortable with me in the house. She literally taunts me like I'm one of her friends. I don't know if that's good or bad. Like, I'm a noob at Roblox. I don't know what she's talking about when she's watching these weird videos on TV. She knows how to navigate YouTube and, like, the smart TV. Now I'm like, what is good? I don't know how to do any of that. I don't I just don't do it. It's only going to get worse, dude. She's only, as, a, as someone that was once an eight-year-old girl, it only gets worse for you. Yeah. Being a girl dad only gets worse as she yeah. gets older. <laughs> no, but like like the it's the gift, you know. We found a year at home. Yeah. And uh I can be thankful for that. Yeah. And it's all it's all we can do is just is be there for each other, which is part of the reason why I wanted to have you on because the whole purpose of the podcast is you know, it's a rock lifestyle podcast and and part of it is to talk to the people that that make the instruments that 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 do the stuff behind the scenes that make the band and the music that we love sound and look the way that it does and i think you have a job that people see but don't really understand they don't know yeah. you know we just like to yell at you when it doesn't sound right yeah yeah i'd rather get yelled at every <laughs> now and then turn you it know. up you pussy yeah that's that's another you know depending where you are in the world, you can turn it up 
you can turn it down. It's that's one of the lessons I learned. Funny enough, way back, it was like depending where you are on planet Earth, you know, like a bad comedian who can't read the room. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of a thing. You know, you're you're in uh, Poland. You can't make it loud enough. It doesn't. There's no such thing as too loud. If you go to South America, there's no such thing as too loud. You go to like Switzerland. Mm, they're going to turn on you quick. Like they just don't culturally do that to themselves. Nobody's in the house listening to Slipknot with the volume dimed out. They're just, you know, they're, it's a very different thing. You know, you get to like, what are you doing? Why are you doing this to us? <laughs> oh, nothing. This is what I did yesterday in, you know, Krakow. Uh, is this not good today? I went and saw Judas Priest in Romania and like, I mean, rabid metal fan. I was like, yeah. whoa. Yeah. Yeah. It's a it whole awesome. other level. My One of my highlights of life of doing this was uh, at Rock and Rio with uh, Alice in Chains in front of Metallica. And it was insane how passionate and just completely losing themselves in the show that they are. You know, when you hear, a, you know, or Metallica in Germany is just about frightening because when you hear like 60,000 Germans shouting, die, die, yeah. die, that's a little, that, that'll set the hair on your neck, you know, for one reason. But, you know. Those South way, American metal fans, I mean, all the bands talk about it, that it's just yeah. a whole other level of passion down there. Yeah. Yeah, they're crazy. But they're crazy in a good way. I mean, they're not doing anything. Russia, you know, everybody, you know, it's, again, music and everything we do crosses all these boundaries. Like all of that goes away. Kids are kids are kids. Doesn't matter what language they speak. They're into it. Well, music you know? is the language that we all speak. I mean, you could like when I was in Romania watching Judas Priest, I was watching people sing every word that didn't speak English. But they knew yeah. every word to the Judas Priest songs, but they only spoke Romanian. Yeah, it's amazing. It really is an amazing thing. That's that's one of the things that I, I love so much about this is that there are no there are no really there are no strangers in a concert. Like everybody's there for the same reason. And it's really hard to describe. Um unless, I don't know if I'm paying attention to it or if I noticed it a long time ago, but like you know, you, you hear uh, a riff a couple of notes, a drum fill or something that's signature to a song, you know, go back to like whatever it might be, but, or whoever it might be that, but you like 70, 80, whatever number of people in the place. In Germany, all, when you hear, nar, 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 that's all you hear. That's all you need. Yeah. And that's everybody's in the same place, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, or they're all remembering where they were when they heard it the first or whatever makes it significant to them. It's not something you can recreate, like, because if you show somebody a picture of something, some people may hate it, but the, the reaction to, to notes, there's some seems to be something that gets past, like, any kind of sensor. Like, you, you just either like it or you don't. And if yeah. you don't like it, you aren't at that show anyway. Right. You know? <laughs> it's just a, it's a, it's a much, it's a much different medium than anything else. Before I let you go, I know one thing about touring, especially the last night of a tour, when a tour has been together for dates and dates and dates. 
And a lot of people may or may not see them. Sometimes they do it on stage. The practical jokes that get played from one band to the next and one crew to the next are legendary. Oh, yeah. What's the best one you ever saw? Whether it got played on you or the band you were with at the time. I mean, there have been things where they've dropped cases of ping pong balls out of the rafters onto the band while they were playing. I mean, some of these practical jokes are unbelievable. Um, <laughs> there's the, the Canadian band Monster Truck. Yeah. So they were in support of Alice in Chains. And great guys. They just, everybody got along so well. We were going across Canada and we were finishing up in Halifax, Nova Scotia. And they took every roll of gaff tape we had left and they flipped it inside out and made circles with it. Like you would, you know, to tape something. Yeah, to tape something up to a wall like a, a, a piece of paper. In, yeah, a loop out of it. And, yeah, yeah, made a loop out of it, except they made hundreds of them. They had us making them like all afternoon, hidden in a dressing room. So right before they went on stage, they started putting them out. All our crew and the local hands started putting these things out all over the stage. These guys don't play with wireless. They have all wired guitars. So... As if that wasn't bad enough, the lights go down, they walk onto the stage, and immediately everybody looks like a Yeti. Like they've got all this gaff tape stuck to their feet, cables are stuck to the floor. It's just a mess, and nobody can move. As if that wasn't bad enough, all of a sudden, these little like remote control trucks came out, like, you know, a fake monster truck, like a lifted truck that they had gone to Toys R Us. So now these guys are on stage playing their opening song, trying to rock out. Nobody can move. And there's all these little toy trucks rolling around on stage. Wait, who the, did it? Monster Truck did it to Alice in Chains or Alice in Chains did it to Monster Truck? Alice did it to the Monster Guys. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you, at that set change was horrible. They're trying to get everything off the stage and everything's covered in tape. And they're just like, we're going to get you. They would not let the crew leave the stage. Like, nobody's leaving. Don't get away from that drum set. If you see any of those guys come up here, I don't care what you do. Hit them with a stun gun. They're not doing nothing to us tonight. But I got I got talked to because I was going to play a trick on the Alice guys. Um, I called, like, a wrangler because I wanted to get a bunch of chickens to let loose on stage while they did Rooster. Because that's oh, how they close the show. You know that that's that nothing good. That's what happened with Ozzy. Like that, these nothing good happens with livestock at a concert, Frank. I know, I know. But I thought it would have been the greatest thing ever to let a bunch of chickens loose up there while they were doing Rooster. <laughs> <laughs> it's just dumb ideas. But yeah, we've seen them all. Like some guys, they'll they'll powder a snare drum the first hit. It's like there's stuff everywhere. Like and, Blue uh, Man Group. Yeah, Van Halen taking away the opening band's, you know, drum set one piece at a time. They leave the guy out there with a high hat to finish the show. <laughs> Dimebag was really good oh. for stuff like that. Dimebag I mean, has videos of him, like, lighting fireworks in people's butt cracks on his couch when he's not on tour. So when he yeah. was on tour, it was a whole other thing. Yeah, those guys really were legendary at, at effing with everybody. And I mean, they, they, Sebastian Bach had a guitar player with 
uh, used to wear this like <laughs> green sequin tuxedo with these giant wings. I, I don't know what it was about, but that was his, his shtick. Well, Dime decided one day he was going to like rig this up. So he came out there and like, you know, like a, you would make for your eight-year-old going to a ballet, angel wings, like made out of wire, <laughs> you know, a wire hanger and a tutu with a Willie Nelson looking acoustic guitar. And, you know, Sebastian's up there rocking out, doing his thing. And all of a sudden here comes Dime dancing around <laughs> right through everybody. All this, and nobody could keep a straight face. It's just How could laughing. you? It's Dimebag Daryl in a tutu. Yeah. The greatest, you know, they were hilarious, hilarious. But that was, you know, that's a that's a whole, there's levels to this game, right? right? That's they were on a whole nother level. I don't think any did anybody ever get Vinny and Dime with a prank because they were just the kings of it. Like, they, they, I, did anybody they, ever succeed at fucking with them because they fucked with everyone and were so good at it? If anybody has, I've never heard of it. <laughs> Honestly, I, I've never heard. Of it. And what's great about them is that if somebody did get them, they would have loved it. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. That they, like if you were actually able to pull one over on them, they would have loved it. Yeah, I think I, I honestly can't imagine that anybody's ever gotten a one over on those two. You know, there's just impossible to imagine. We've seen everything. Phil get knocked off the stage by his cousin swinging on a rope. <laughs> you know, in his underwear. Like the but most like these things. They sound bizarre to the normal person. But yeah, like, but that's were... Tuesday for Pantera in the heyday. <laughs> yes. It's just Tuesday. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, I can't wait for tour pranks. Oh, God. Yeah, yeah. I've uh, There was oh, there was another good one. Tim McGraw and Luke. Um, Luke, I guess, had just started coming into you know his own. And his wife bought him a recreation of a Bronco truck that he had driven way back in the day, like a, a Bronco Jeep. Was, uh, so they, they would tow it around behind the tour bus on a trailer. So he'd get into town, he could get on the thing and drive around. Well, I guess Tim McGraw decided, well, we're going to fix this. And they hired a, a tag artist from San Francisco <gasps> to tag his truck, except he tagged it and uh, covered it back up again. I think it was toward the end of the tour. Hey, buddy, I got you a present. I hope you, you've had a great time with you. And they yanked the cover off it, and they had painted this beautiful truck that had been restored that his wife had given him. And, like, didn't know what to do. Like, the look on his face was just shocking. And Tim just walked off. Well, got to go, man. I got to go to work just as his, his show is starting. So he's walk. he walks, like, leaves him out there. <laughs> uh, it turned out that the paint was water-soluble. They just painted it with uh, water-based paint so they could wash it off. But he didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, some of it borders on like, oh, my God, what have you done? Because here's poor Luke thinking you destroyed this sentimental gift my wife gave me. Yeah, yeah. Meanwhile, a garden hose and it's gone because Tim yeah. McGraw's not a dick. Well, who knew at that point? Well, that's what I mean. Like, <laughs> oh. Oh. Yeah, they all... They're all crazy. You've heard about all the Aussie stuff with Iron Maiden, and they—they uh, they are just—they're relentless. Yeah. yeah. Well, all of those bands. I think there's something about that generation of metal bands from England. You know that it's just like between like Aussie and Maiden and Priest. It's like that whole 
like the fucking stories and and like what's happening. You get all those bands firing on all cylinders, touring at the same time. I mean, you and yeah. I definitely got into the business at the right time, but if we gotten in like 10 years earlier, like we would have seen... We may not have survived. Yeah. We <laughs> <laughs> may not have survived. That was a rougher crowd than I've ever been with, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when I was doing tech stuff, it was like the mid-90s. So it was like, can you imagine like the roadie pranks when like Guns and Motley Crue and all those bands were like in the in the mid to late eighties. No, and it's yeah, that's a level of excess I never saw. Right. right? Yeah, things changed by the time you and I kind of got in there in the nineties, and it yeah. still was crazy, but it wasn't the same. But I've heard the stories. Oh yeah. Well, we you know the the guys I learned from once I got out on the road had already been there. Right. right. And they're like, oh, you kids, you haven't seen anything. You know, this guy used to do. He, he did what? <laughs> Are you kidding? Oh, no. Some of the old Polaroids, you know. Oh, yeah. Like, Jesus. I Put know. that can thing you, away, dude. Can you imagine if that. we had like TikTok and Twitter and Skype and no. camera phones back in the day? Like, No, not at all. None of it would have survived. All. It's already rough enough. That's all you need is proof of stuff that went on. <laughs> kidding? The legends are better. Yeah. And I, I honestly don't think most of those years could have been worse than people say they are. You know? Yeah. These stories aren't exaggerated. <laughs> they really were that crazy. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, just a no- couple of weeks ago, you know, when I was doing the, the, the sit rep, the music news was the anniversary of Nikki Six dying. Yeah. And I'm reading this whole story that the other three guys in the band were told he was dead and like were dealing with that before they found out that they were able to revive him and then they brought they brought him back to life. Yeah, Lazarus. It's craziness. Yeah. My wife would literally read that book, The Dirt. Oh. And she it, she would stop in bed and just like hang on, listen to this. <laughs> <laughs> and the movie was good, but there's no way they could have done everything that's in that book in the movie. I, I honestly, I didn't read the whole book. I got the excerpts and the highlights from Chrissy. Yeah. And I, I just. Who, she, by the way, for anybody that's listening, Frank's wife, Chrissy, worked on Real Rock TV with us for years at WAF. So we all go way back. Yeah, we're all roadies. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the other half of why our marriage is uh, successful. Like we met on tour. Uh she, like we, uh, we, everybody knows what it is. Like this right. is not a surprise. You know, yeah. I, di- I didn't marry a girl from the farm in Iowa. Yeah, well, it's like me marrying my husband. Like he's in the military. I get it. I understand it. Yeah, you know it's what just, you're getting yeah. into. Yeah, and if you don't, you haven't been paying attention. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if he quite knew what he was getting into, but I definitely knew what I was getting into. Yeah. No, that's good. It's uh. It's been a great 12 years. Right? Yeah, I know. I can't believe it. I can't believe it. That's why, like, when, when we were talking about actually doing this, because you and I have been messaging each other back and forth for months about when we were actually going to do this, and I tried to think about when it was that you and I met. It had to have been that Godsmack show at, at on OzFest. It had to have been. That sounds about right. I don't know when I would have met you before that, because you were in Texas, so it had to have been... 
God smack at Ozfest. Yeah, that's uh, yeah, it was 20, 22 years now. <laughs> I know. That's what I mean. Wow. Yeah. It's hard. It's hard to think of that. Man, I'm gonna catch a lot of hell from people calling me grandpa again. I'm gonna have to beat the shit out of a few people. Over here. <laughs> I hate that. I really do. I hate it. I got accused of coloring my hair a couple of days ago. No way. Yeah, like Grecian like, no. formula just for men. Yeah. I don't know. I don't. I don't know. I don't buy that stuff. I've seen it. Like, you know, the hair probably isn't such a bad idea. When you color the beard, you oh. really you've committed it. Yeah, point. you're you start in. Look, <laughs> the sheriff of Nottingham. What are you doing? Oh. With that thing? <laughs> Start looking like Professor Severus Snape. <laughs> What's his name? Rick Nakatomi Tower, the guy who gets chucked oh, off. Um, oh, my God. Why can't I remember his name? I love him so much. That's because we're old. Can't remember shit anymore. Oh, don't tell me that. <laughs> Rick. Now I got to. People are screaming at us. Are they? They're going to be when they listen to this and we can't think of his fucking name. Yeah. Oh, who got chucked off Nakatomi Towers on Christmas Eve? Uh, Alan Rickman. Alan Rickman. What is wrong with us? Old. We're aged. I know. I mean, we're not useless. We're just, you know, tires are getting a little flat. We're experienced. <laughs> yeah. I like that. Yeah. I'm not old. I'm vintage. I'm vi- <laughs> vintage is cool, man. <laughs> I know. Vintage is cool. Yeah. Tell your daughter that when she's making fun of you because you don't know how to use YouTube. Just tell her oh. you're vintage. Tell how cool vinyl is now. Yeah. I went through the radio a while back and she just started in with old people music in the back of the car. Just, just, just deadpans it. Old people music. Like, just shut up back there before you kill us both. (laughs) The other day I turned on the radio and I was like mindlessly just trying to keep my eye on the road and just, you know, switching stations with the scan. And I'd, oh, this is good. I like this. Oh, this is another good song. I'm going to leave it here. Finally, I get to a red light, look down to see the station. Classic. The yeah. oldies. I was mm-hmm. like, mother. I know. Think like Panama's oldies. And you went right by 107.3 because if you don't, it hurts your soul. Well, I don't even know what's there anymore. Christian rock. Yeah. I'm not even going to address that. <laughs> I'm not even going to address that. <laughs> not at all. No. Like, just, that's that's a contradiction in terms. Yeah. That's why we let, that's literally why we ended the broadcast the last night we were on the air with Black Sabbath, Black Sabbath. Because we were like, you know what? If we're handing it over, we're going to make sure it's all Satan before it goes. It Here was, go. uh, I was, I was, we were home. By the time that happened, we were home in bed. And we were listening to it. We were like, this is awesome. This is awesome. This is awesome. And that songs came on. We're like, oh, this is perfect. What a thought. I can't wait to hear this goodbye. And then there was nothing. It just ended. Yeah. And it was like, holy shit, this is like Apollo 13. We're just out here on our own now. This There's nothing. There's a... Uh, heartbreaking ending. I'm yeah. sorry to say it. I mean, no, I, I don't it's, want to bring it up. But no, it no. Just... I mean, it's, it's you know, we, we tossed and toyed about what the last song should be. We put a lot of thought into it. You know, there were the people with the obvious stairway to heaven and like whatever. But Black Sabbath started in 1970 when AAF went on the air. Literally, that record came out like six weeks before AAF signed on the air. And so we were like between Satan 
Ozzy being the only artist that had literally stayed current for all 50 years, like released a new record yeah. like a, you know, a, a, a week before, two weeks before he released a new single. And so we were like, well, it definitely should be Ozzy, Black Sabbath. Like this is what AAF would have been playing 50 years ago. And it was so Satan-y that we thought it was perfect. But we... We just, I mean, as soon as we stopped the AAF chant and the lyrics kicked in at the beginning of the song and we shut the mics off for the last time, it was like we were all just crying in the studio. And to this day, when I hear that song, I know a lot of people that were listening, like when they hear that song, that's what they think of. And we purposefully just let it end and go dark because there was nothing left to say at that point. Like there was, it was just over. And we were just sitting in there and it got quiet and it was just like, like even now I think about it with everything we've been through since last February, it seems like yesterday in some respects and seems like it was a lifetime ago in others. Like I can't believe it was almost a year ago already. It's insane to me that that much time has gone by. Well, I mean, you're kicking the shit out of it now. You I'm know, trying. You got your own thing going on. Yeah, I got it's my studio. Great. It's the the podcast has been going really well, and I joined the um, the Pantheon Podcast Network, which is podcast for music lovers. So I joined this network of all of these other podcast hosts that are all doing stuff that's just music centric, which is awesome. So I'm in this amazing music lover community now, and we'll see we'll see what this year brings but it's it's already gone a hell of a lot better than i thought it was going to by this point so i'm pretty excited about it and thank you for being a part of it oh i'm honored that you would ask me to come on here and babble about nothing for 2 hours and love it yeah no but it's i think it's really cool and i i know the feedback from the people that listen to it i think they're going to be really interested in what the backside of all of this is you know and what it's like to be the guy that gets yelled at twisting the sound knobs in the middle of the concert. Like you're that yeah. guy. Yeah. Well, it's been a it's been a unbelievable ride from a bar in an airport grill Rhode Island to a, <laughs> you know, Gillette Stadium as the you know, an engineer working for some of the acts that I have. I've is that the is that the day like of all the gigs in the world? Cause I know for me as a DJ going out on Metallica stage at Gillette Stadium to introduce the band is definitely in my like top five moments of my entire career. Was was mixing a band at Gillette, being a New England guy, oh, yeah. one of those moments? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I, the only way, the only way it could have gotten any better was if that was all I ever did. I, it's hard to explain. Like you, you work a long time. You do these things, and a lot of guys and women. I'm not. I, I, no, I, I say that yeah, as yeah. The, the royal we or they um, work hard and never get to do what I do. So I, I don't take it lightly. I don't take it. Yeah. I don't take it for granted. Um, but yeah, being at home at Gillette Stadium, sold out, and you're in the middle of the floor, and everybody's having a great time is kind of hard to beat. Yeah. You know, I don't think there's anything like it. The only other thing that came close was selling out Dodger Stadium when Luke sold out Dodger Stadium because he was the first country artist to sell it out. Wow. So we had this one on this coast and that one over there. And there's a really great 
almost iconic picture of him carrying his two boys off under his arms out of, off a of Dodger Stadium stage as he's walking away. So it, it means a lot to them. It definitely right. means a lot to us. And it means a lot to the fans, too. It's, it's one of those things you, you can't you can't forget uh, them. Doesn't matter what doesn't matter what I do. It, I mean, it matters, but I'm nobody pays money to see me. I, they they pay money to for me to be out of the way to watch a show and listen to it the way it and should to be, be and to be part of it, which yeah. I think is the part we're all dying to get back to more than anything is to be in that place with a bunch of other people experiencing that thing at the same time that you love. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you couldn't have put it any better. Could well, then I got to end the interview there on a high note. All right. With that, I'm Five leaving. minutes ago, we couldn't remember who the fuck Alan Rickman is. I got to end it on this high note now. All right. Well, thank you again for having me. I loved it. There he is, Frank. Alone. I know I ruined that song for you. Every time you listen to I Stand Alone by Godsmack. And before everybody sends me corrections, I know that song is off the Scorpion King soundtrack, not The Mummy. But it's tied to The Mummy. But you know what I mean. Huge thanks to Frank. We've been friends for so long, and it was awesome having him on the podcast. And I hope you learned a lot, too. Thanks to our sponsors this week, DCU or Digital Federal Credit Union at dcu.org. And obviously, mistresscarry.com. If you liked what you heard, don't forget to click subscribe so you don't miss anything on the Mistress Carrie podcast. New episodes every Wednesday and Monday through Friday, you can get caught up with all of your rock news, music headlines, and industry info with the sit rep. And it's all in less than five minutes. And if you don't mind, leave me a comment and a five-star review, too. And join me for a cocktail every Tuesday night at 8.30, live on my Facebook page for Cocktails in the War Room. The Mistress Carrie Podcast, a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Progressive presents Adjusting to the Suburbs. You used to associate crickets with silence. But since you bought a house in the suburbs, you know crickets hate silence. If any other creature realized rubbing its legs together made a piercing high-pitched noise, they might think, maybe I won't do that. Constantly. All night long. Luckily, you can save with Progressive by bundling your home and auto. Now that's something to make noise about. Just not constantly. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company coverage provided in service by affiliates and third-party insurers. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.